This show is supported by the BS Podcast Network. They got tons of great content over there. Please go check them out. In addition, sometimes I say things on this show that sounds like medical advice. I can tell you right now it's not. If you want medical advice, go talk to your doctor, not me. By supporting this show, you're supporting a cause. That cause is making science accessible for everyone. Thank you for your support. What's up, everyone? Adam here, and today we are talking about atoms. It's basically science. Today we are talking about atoms. Atoms make up all of the known matter in the world. The word atom is derived from the Greek word atomos, which means uncuttable. That is a terribly ironic derivation of the word because cutting or splitting of atoms is so iconic in world history. Today we're going to be talking about the overview of what an atom is, its structure, and how we got to know what it is. And we're also going to be talking about why it's important to understand them. First, let's start with what an atom is. Like I said, the first thought comes from Greek philosophy that everything is made up of some unseen object and that you can take anything and you can cut it up and you can keep cutting it until you get to a object or a particle that you can no longer cut. From then on, more was done in the fields of chemistry, physics, and mathematics up until about the 1900s when the science of atoms really takes off. Many people contributed to findings such as John Dalton, Robert Brown, J.J. Thompson, and Ernest Rutherford. To start on the surface, we're going to start talking with Thompson and Rutherford. In the time of Ernest and Rutherford, prior to their work, there was a model to describe atoms, which was known as the plum pudding model. An analogy to that would be a brownie with nuts in it. That brownie, all of the chocolatey part, all of the brownie part, had a distributed positive charge, and the little nuts inside the brownie would be point negative charges. The entire brownie as a whole would have a net neutral charge, and that's what the understanding of atoms were at that time. Between 1908 and 1913, Ernest Rutherford produced one of the most famous experiments uh, known in nuclear physics and that would be the gold foil experiment. Basically, the gold foil experiment allowed Rutherford to dissolve the plum pudding model, which laid groundwork for Neil Bohr, who we'll talk about in a minute, to create a different model. The gold foil experiments found that there's no possible way that a positive charge could be distributed across the entire brownie like we had talked about and that there has to be a central point where that positive charge is. And that's what we now call a proton, that central point of positive charge, and it's in the center of an atom. At this time, when Rutherford is experimenting, we also knew of another particle called an electron. And the electron was analogous to those little peanuts. They were the negative charges and they were a particle and they were uh, at a point. So now in 1913, Neil Bohr comes along and publishes another model different from the plum pudding model. And this is the model that most people think of when they think of an atom. 
It has a central nucleus with an electron orbiting around that nucleus, almost like the Earth orbits around the Sun. The difference is the position of Earth from the Sun is defined by its distance, whereas the position of these electrons are defined by their energy state or the amount of energy that they have associated with them. If we fast forward to what we know now, there were a lot of famous scientists along the way to contribute to what we now know. One of those scientists is Louis de Broglie, who was the first to propose that atoms and electrons specifically act with a behavior similar to a wave, like a wave of light. This laid some more groundwork that was then built upon by Schrodinger. Schrodinger had three main points that he really, really contributed. First, electrons have a spin. Now, that spin is not like how the Earth spins around its axis. Rather, it's more of a up-down spin, and it's more associated with different energy states. Energy states are just how much energy that electron has, and it's a finite amount of energy. He also contributed to the fact that these particles act as if they were waves, and they don't quite act as if they were like a ball, like you were throwing a ball. It is completely non-traditional in terms of physics. And this was around 1916. Schrodinger also contributed to some mathematics that define the position of an electron in the atom. And what we now know is that the electron doesn't truly orbit like the Earth does the Sun. Rather, there is a specific area around the nucleus that that electron can exist at any given point in time. Its position is completely based on statistical probability. And that's a whole lot of math that we are definitely not going to get into, but it's important to know that the electrons truly don't spin like Niels Bohr thought they did. Next comes along Francis William Aston. He develops a concept called isotopes. Around the same time, we are learning from James Chadwick in 1932 that there are such things as neutrons. So we now know that protons and neutrons make up the nucleus of an atom. Protons have a net positive charge, neutrons are neutral, and electrons have a net negative charge. This nucleus of protons and neutrons can be changed. And when you change the ratio of protons to neutrons in, a, in the nucleus, you develop what's called an isotope. For example, say we have an atom of gold. If we were to slightly add or change the amount of protons to neutrons, you would develop gold isotopes. So all of this stuff really kind of comes together and in 1944, Otto Hahn wins a Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery of nuclear fission. Nuclear fission is an extremely important concept, and it's one that we're going to spend most of the time talking about because nuclear fission directly caused the invention of the atomic bomb. So before we go any further, we're just going to recap a little bit, okay? So we now know that an atom has a nucleus and is composed of protons with positive charges and neutrons with neutral charges. In any space around that central nucleus, 
An electron can exist at a certain statistical probability, and it has a net negative charge. So now that we know what this atom is, what's its relevance? Why does it matter? In July of 1945, the first nuclear bomb was detonated in the U.S., and that bomb was created by Robert Oppenheimer. About a month or so later, Hiroshima happened. These atomic bombs were a direct result of the discovery of nuclear fission, because that's how they worked. Nuclear fission is the splitting of an atom, and when you split the nucleus of an atom, or split the atom, it releases an incredible amount of energy, as if you've ever seen pictures of the aftermath of Hiroshima, you would understand that. It releases this absurd amount of energy, and it's terribly ironic because the Greeks called it this uncuttable thing. Well, now that we have uh, split it or cut it, it wreaks havoc. A little bit later, in the 50s, came the development of a hydrogen bomb. Now, the hydrogen bomb is different from the atomic bomb because it works in a different way. That bomb was developed on the discovery of what's called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion acts in opposition to nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion is the combination of two small atoms to create a larger one, and it also splits off another super small atom, or another super small particle. This occurs in the sun, and that's how sun produces its heat, or its energy. There's another topic in science called thermodynamics, which is extremely in-depth, and it may be another podcast episode, but essentially thermodynamics says that Energy is equal to heat, and heat is equal to energy. And that's what I want you to remember from here on out, because that's how we're going to start to get a grasp and an understanding of nuclear power. Nuclear power is created by taking an element such as uranium in a controlled environment and then induce a fission reaction underwater. This fission reaction produces steam, and that steam it then rises because heat rises, right? And it spins a wind turbine in the nuclear power plant, and that's how we generate electricity, by, the, by spinning that turbine. It works the exact same way as a hydroelectric dam, except the water isn't spinning the turbine, it's the steam. As of now, we do not have fusion reactors. And the reason for that is fusion produces significantly more energy, but it is very hard to control. Fission, on the other hand, produces less energy, but we can control it and it's safer. At the same token, fusion technology is significantly more expensive than fission technology. So some of the fallbacks of nuclear power is it can be expensive. Well, of course it's going to be expensive. It's still a relatively new technology compared to fossil fuels, for example. Additionally, we don't quite know what to do with the waste yet, albeit it's only a little bit of waste, but the waste we don't know what to do with. According to worldnuclear.org, of all nuclear waste, 3% is spent fuel, so used uranium, so to speak, while everything else is just contaminated equipment. So let's just review a little bit. To split atoms is called 
fission, nuclear fission. To combine atoms is called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fission produces less energy but is controllable and cheaper. Nuclear fusion produces significantly more energy but is not controllable and is more expensive. Again, consider the difference in technology that would explain why it's so expensive. In my opinion, the understanding of atoms and nuclear physics, at least to this level, allows you to be more responsible in making policy decisions or voting for policy decisions. According to UN.org, in 1968, the Treaty of Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons was signed internationally. And the purpose of that treaty was to prevent the proliferation or the development of nuclear weapons. Now, in 2017, the UN proposed another nuclear weapons treaty called the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This was different because it was now designed to prohibit production, development, stockpiling, and nuclear weapons as a whole. The, the goal in mind is to get rid of nuclear weapons. Upon the opening of that treaty, 50 countries signed it. However, the U.S., Great Britain, France, and other large players have opposed the treaty. And instead, they have committed to non-proliferation treaty, which was the one from 1968, according to NTI.org. I am no politician. Uh, I'll never be close to being a politician. However, as a scientist, I believe that this 2017 UN treaty was one of the best things that could have come up from this. I mean, it essentially stops our science from destroying ourselves. I believe that if nuclear weapons get into the wrong person's hands, it could result in mass destruction or mutually assured destruction, which is a topic that is extremely important to me because you're shooting yourself in the foot by launching nukes at someone else. I don't get it. I don't understand. I understand we should keep our nuclear arsenal for the time being because of the current geopolitical status. We're going to want to protect ourselves if we have to. But it's quite frustrating that the entire world can't come together and be on the same page about how bad nuclear weapons are for the environment. Now, on to nuclear power. In 2019, 20% of generated electricity in the U.S. was from nuclear power plants, according to worldnuclear.org. Now, this is a hot-button topic in politics. If, if I'm being honest, I 100% support nuclear power. Now, I know people that grew up very close to a nuclear power plant, and growing up there... You know, if an emergency happens, the response time that you need to have is unreal. And I completely understand the fear behind that. You know, that is completely a valid fear. However, I believe that if we're going to push this technology forward, scientists can figure it out. 
we can figure out how to deal with waste. We can figure out how to make the technology cheaper by constantly reworking it and redeveloping it. And that's the beauty of science. And as a scientist, I believe in that. And I really am trying to get other people to believe in science just as much as I do. I think that most scientists are on the same page in terms of our belief and in terms of our support of science. I mean, if you didn't support science, I don't think you would find yourself getting into a a scientific profession, but I, I mean, it could happen. I guess what I'm really trying to say is you're going to hear me push topics a lot, and I, I don't want to offend anyone, but... I'm going to support the science that comes out of this country's labs because as a scientist, I feel like that's my obligation and I truly do believe in them. With a further understanding of atoms and this baseline understanding of nuclear physics, we can, as people, be more responsible and more informed on making policy decisions, especially when considering policy decisions about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. That's it for this week's episode. I want to thank you for listening today. If you're interested in more content, you can follow It's Basically Science on Twitter at Science Basic Pod. You can also like and follow on Facebook at It's Basically Science Podcast. And if you're really interested, you can follow me personally on Twitter at Burgess Adam. B-U-R-G-I-S-A-D-A-M. I hope to see you next week. <laughs>